We're studying the Gospel of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 20. We, uh, in our church, we just go right through books of the Bible. Uh, we've been in Luke uh, last, uh, two winters ago, we started Luke, and uh, we're going to be finishing Luke from now into June, and so we're, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, and uh, as we're nearing his death on the cross, and um, so we're looking at Luke chapter 20, the verse 18 verses. And this is God's word to you uh, because uh, he's your king. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things and who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why do you not believe me? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and uh, and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then? Is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is so different than everything we hear in the world. And especially as Jesus challenges church leaders. In this passage, we pray that we, uh, our church and and the leaders in this church, would be shaped by your word and by the gospel. And so uh, we pray that even as we uh, get prepared uh, to vote for elders today, that you would use your word to guide us by your Holy Spirit. That you would give us wisdom and that this church its leadership and its mission, all the things that we're doing would be pleasing to you and it would be in accord with the mission that Jesus has given to his disciples. So be our teacher now. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and take my words and apply them to the hearts and to the lives of those who are here, uh, that you would be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, what our church is doing, this meeting that I just talked to you about that we're doing after, uh, after church is actually... A very countercultural thing to do, uh, and what I mean by that is uh, our culture 
in Bellingham and Whatcom County, the average person would be very suspicious of what we're about to do. We're going to organize. Right? <laughs> you know that word. Like, if you talk to anyone in, uh, in the average person in Bellingham, well, what do you think about God or Jesus? They would say, you know, I, I like God. I believe in God. I believe there's some power out there that's guiding my life. And I think Jesus had definitely had some special connection uh, to that God. But the thing that I have a real problem with is organized religion, right? I don't believe in organized religion, exactly what we're about to do. Why? Because uh, what happens is uh, it's fine for people to have a personal spiritual life, but it's when uh, groups of people put people into spiritual authority, and they got that holy book, and they have um, power to manipulate people, to lay guilt on people, to get control of their lives, to put people in cages, uh, spiritual cages, and they uh, tie up their life so they don't get to be who they, you know, they don't get to follow their hearts anymore. And so our culture would be very suspicious of what we're about to do. We're about to elect elders who are going to have spiritual authority over us. And, uh, you know, well, if that's you, you know, you, that may, you may have a past with that. That may be your experience of churches, is that uh, that, that is what church leaders do, is they, they want to get into a position of power and manipulate people and, and get control of them. And um, if that's you, I, first of all, I'd like to say that you might be glad to know that throughout the Bible, the, the most severe, the most piercing critiques, that either it's, whether it's the, old, the prophets in the Old Testament or whether it's the apostles in the New Testament or whether it's Jesus himself, the thing that stirs up Jesus' rage more than anything uh, are religious leaders. Uh, they're the ones that he agrees. that they, He says that they lay burdens on people. They lay tremendous burdens on people that just suffocate their lives. And so Jesus is deeply critical of church leaders. And so what we might expect when we come to the Bible is that, you know, Jesus is kind of this uh, free spirit, um, Bellinghamster, hippie, who wants to free the shackles, uh, free us of the shackles of organized religion. That's what we might expect. And yet what we find is he's doing exactly the opposite. I mean, his whole ministry was devoted to training 12 guys who he said to go build the church. And they're going to go out throughout the Mediterranean world, and they're going to go to all the major cities in the Mediterranean world, and they're going to appoint uh, spiritual authority, elders in all the cities, and then they're going to write a holy book. They're going to write the New Testament. You know? <laughs> all the things that, that people who have a problem with, with organized religion, Jesus is telling them to do all those things. And so what that tells us um, is that the big question, you know, Jesus is making an organized religion. That's what Jesus did is he made an organized religion. Um, and so what that means is that the big question for Jesus is not whether we should have organized religion. You know, he, he would have said, of course you should have organized religion. You know, if love really came into the world, love himself, if God really acted and transformed people's lives so they love their neighbor as themselves, he knew that the most natural thing we would do is form a community like this. Of people, he, it would form a family. It wouldn't be me by myself up in the mountains uh, having a spiritual encounter with God. It would be me with people in a family, brothers and sisters. And so it had, it had to be an organized religion. If you have people, you're going to have to organize. So he would have said, of course we're going to have organized religion. But the thing that was deeply important to him was what was the character, what was the heart of the church leaders? 
What, were the church leadership, what was the church leadership like? And as we look at this passage, you see that this is what this passage is talking about. Um, verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, this is just, these are the, the church leaders, the religious leaders, came up to him saying, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. And the setting of this passage is a confrontation between Jesus and and church leaders, religious leaders. And it asks the question, what does Jesus expect of church leaders? What does he expect from them? What is he looking for from them? And of course, that, you know, as we have this meeting where you're about to vote for elders in this church, that's a question that we're asking right now. What are are we looking for in church leaders? What are the qualifications? What are the, 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 the most important things to Jesus? When we're going to put someone in a position of authority, when we're going to entrust with them the authority over people's lives, spiritual authority, uh, we're giving that, you know, there's a lot of power there. Um, And what we're going to find is that Jesus' picture of leadership is radically different than the picture of leadership that the world has. So what I want to do as we look at this passage, I want to draw out three um, qualities of leadership that uh, Jesus prioritizes. That church leaders should be humble, fruitful, and gospel-centered. Humble, fruitful, and gospel-centered. And we're going to look at each of these in, in detail. And, you know, I should, a couple notes. I, I planned this sermon probably eight months ago. I didn't know we were going to be having this meeting today. And here I am in a text that is perfect for what we need to be talking about. It, you know, that seems, the Lord seems to orchestrate that um, uh, regularly for me, I, I, uh, but also the picture in this in this passage is really a negative picture of church leadership. You know what they shouldn't be. So I'm going to kind of take the negative and kind of frame it in a more positive sense, so you can hear humble, fruitful, and gospel centered are more positive positive qualities. So if if that feels a little awkward, uh, that's why. But um, these are the three things that we're going to be looking at. First of all, the Christian leadership is humble, and. Um, The passage that we're looking at begins with the religious leaders questioning Jesus. Um, It says in verse 2 that they said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? So Jesus has been in the temple. He's teaching. He actually, you know, he was throwing over the tables of the money changers and stuff. He did this big dramatic act. So he's been doing a lot of stuff in the temple. And they ask him, who gave you this authority? And what commentators say is that, uh, you know, you'll notice that they, they asked him two questions. There's two-part questions. And, and commentators say that the two things that they're asking him about are, first of all, you know, they're in the temple, and Jesus is kind of coming into their turf. This is their turf, the temple. This is where they kind of run the show. And he's coming in onto their turf. And uh, it's kind of the domain. Where, where does Jesus have authority? What setting? Why does he think he can come onto their turf and, and be teaching their people and, and inviting people in that they didn't invite in and things like that? And then second of all, the question of, of the nature of his authority. Who gave it to him? And I think that both of these things tell us something about what humble leadership looks like. What does it look like for someone to be a humble leader? And the first thing is that humble leaders understand that their leadership is a gift and not a right. Their leadership is a gift and not a right. And, um, you know, the characters in this scene are the chief priests and the, and the scribes. And the chief priests... How they would have gotten their authority was, first of all, the family that they were born into, their, their family heritage, and also where they lived. 
if they lived near the temple, that's how they would become uh, chief priests, is because of their, you know, they, so they feel like they have this kind of right to this church leadership, because I'm born in this family, I live near here, this is my turf. And the scribes would have gotten their authority because uh, they'd been to school. You know, they're kind of like lawyers. They went to school and they, they learned about the law. And so both of them say, because of these things that we have, we have a right to be in a position of authority. And when you look at the leaders that Jesus appoints in his church and his organized religion that he puts together, they have a very different picture of why they're in leadership. You know, you look at the Apostle Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. And he also says in in Romans, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the nation. So for Paul, he understands that the fact that he got to be a church, I mean, he has probably under Jesus the most authority of anyone who's been in the church. You know, he wrote uh, 13 or 14 books of the Bible. um, And uh, he was planting churches all over the Mediterranean. And the book of Acts is largely about him. So he's in this tremendous about position of authority, and he said it was purely by grace that God gave this to me. It's not a right. I don't deserve this, and God gave it to me. And um, I think that that's tremendously important. That, you know, like that I don't have a right to be a pastor. I don't have a right to have spiritual authority in, over your life. It's purely God's grace to me. And you know, it's a tremendous privilege. It's an honor to be, you know, many of you have let me into areas of your life that you've let very few people, maybe no one else into. Things that have happened in your life that no one else knows about that I do know about. That's a tremendous honor. And what you want is a kind of people who understand they don't have a right to be in that position. It is by grace. And they should tremble that they're, they're being let into that space and having that role in your life. It should be deeply humbling. And people who understand that their, their position is something that God has given, that they don't deserve, but that God has given to them, will begin to tremble in that way and will respect that position. So first of all, humble leaders understand it's a gift, not a right. But second, humble leaders understand that Jesus is the judge and not them. Jesus is the judge and not them. Now, um, uh, one of the things to notice in this passage is that the setting is the religious leaders are... Um, asking Jesus questions. So the scenario is kind of like there's an examination going on. Someone needs to give an account, and they say, Jesus, you need to give an account to us for what you're doing. And, you know, actually, this is something we should be aware of in our modern culture. One of the, the big uh, differences in terms of the view of God that has changed in the modern world, in, in, in the ancient world, and, and for centuries up until the modern period, the common person always understood that I'm going to have to give an account to God for my life. I'm going to have to explain to him why I've done the things that I... He doesn't have to explain to me what he's doing. Now, almost everyone sees God as someone who has to give an account to them. For the things he's done in the Bible, the ways he acts, as we say, the roles have been reversed, right? And we say, we're in the judgment seat, and we'll decide whether we like what God's doing or not. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis has... funny essay where he says something about that, you know, that many people think that the most important question is, what do you make of Jesus Christ? And he's like, you think that's the most important question? What you think of Jesus Christ? The most important question is what Jesus Christ thinks of you. (laughs) It's a way bigger question. And uh, that's, you know, what we see here, it's possible for church leaders to think that they're actually the one in the judgment seat. And uh, that's what, uh, that they think that this is their little kingdom right here. And they're the judges, and these are their people. 
And that, you see how the arrogance in these, the, these church, uh, these chief priests and the scribes, that they think that Jesus actually has to give an account to them. And, of course, Jesus does not tolerate that. Um, and it's, it's one of <laughs> Jesus' strokes of brilliance. You know, he has many of these just quick-witted, brilliant uh, rebuttals to the, to the religious leaders when he's kind of in a confrontation with them. And um, he says that he'll be the one doing the examining. So look at verse 3. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. So he doesn't answer the questions. You're not going to be the one doing the question answering. I'll be the one asking the questions. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? Uh, But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're, uh, they're convinced that, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And um, you notice what, what happens here. Jesus asked them a question about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had come before Jesus saying that Jesus was the Messiah. And he asked them, well, what about John? What do you think about him? They don't even think about that. They don't even answer the question. Even in their little discussion, they didn't come back and say, you know, well, what was John? Was John from heaven or from man? They don't even think about that. They think about how can they keep their authority. And what Jesus is doing is he's acting as the judge who's exposing their hearts, exposing the reality of their hearts, but that the reality is they don't really care what God's doing. They don't really care if God's active in Jesus and John the Baptist. They care about maintaining their authority, maintaining their little kingdom, maintaining their turf, and that no one's crowding their turf. And um, what that means is that humble leaders... Welcome Jesus' examination. And they know that I'm the one that needs to be examined. Jesus needs to question me. I am not the one questioning him. I'm not setting the rules in this, envir- in this, in this church. Jesus is the one setting the church, uh, setting the rules in this. Uh, and, and one of the things the church leaders were doing, they were adding rules to, to, to what God's word said. Tremendous amount of arrogance saying, This is my turf, this is my kingdom. And, but humble leaders will welcome the examination. Now, I, I just want to say, first of all, how different this is than the world's kind of vision of leadership. Who we look for for leaders in the, in the world, there's people who are very competent, uh, that are independent, and, uh, and that are arrogant oftenly, often. We flock to people who show, put off a sense of arrogance and, self, and uh, self-sufficiency. And here... Christian leadership, the first priority is humility. That's what Jesus is calling us to, okay? So first, but you can't, it's not enough to just be humble, okay? To be a church leader. There's, uh, you do have to do something. There is some competence, um, but it, again, that's different than what maybe what the world looks for. And that leads to a second point, that Christian leadership is not just humble, but it's also fruitful. Christian leadership is fruitful. Now, you know, Jesus has this little interaction where he says, I'm going to ask you the questions, and, and he kind of exposes their hypocrisy. And then he goes on to tell a parable. And it says in verse 9, uh, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, if you were a Jew in, in the temple, if you were listening in to this uh, this. Ex- 
exchange was happening and you heard this parable, as soon as he began the parable that way, talking about a vineyard, that a guy had had a vineyard and that he was letting it out uh, to tenants and that he was looking for fruit, they would instantly know what Jesus was talking about. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, there was a famous um, parable that Isaiah told that said that Israel, God's people, the church in the Old Testament, Israel, was a vineyard that God was looking for fruit from. And they would immediately know, oh, he's, telling, he's talking about the people of God, and yet there are these tenants. Um, so when Jesus says there were these tenants who were entrusted with the vineyard, they would know these are the, these are the church leaders. He's telling a parable about church leadership. And, um, and I think uh, that they're farmers. You know, that word for tenant could be translated farmers. He had entrusted this vineyard to some farmers. And that's a common image for church leadership in the Bible is that church leaders are farmers, especially of vineyards, farmers of vineyards. And um, vine fruit requires farmers to do at least two things, but I'm going to talk about two things that it requires them to do. First of all, vine fruit requires a tremendous amount of gentleness. If you're going to get fruit out of a vineyard, you need a, a gentleness and nurture. Um, I actually, I don't know how many of you know this, that Whatcom County, uh, 75% of the raspberries that are grown in the uh, United States are grown in Whatcom County. Actually, Whatcom County is one of the like, top three raspberry growers in the world. And there's a place in Germany and a place in Chile, and then right here is where you grow raspberries. And um, actually, I have this little dream you know, I have these dreams of things that I want to do with my life. One of my dreams is to start a seminary slash raspberry farm. <laughs> Should I just leave it? And, and you go and you grow raspberries and you study theology. Because, uh, and so that's what's on the horizon for us. That's what's in the future for us. And uh, so you'd come, and so actually I was talking to someone this week, we were having lunch, I was telling them about my dream, and I want to have, you know, you work in the field, and then you go and you read Augustine or something. And, uh, and I, this person actually happened to know a little bit about raspberries, and, was, and they were talking about how delicate uh, raspberries are. One of the things, even though there's a tremendous amount of raspberry production in Whatcom County, you know, if you, in August or whenever the main harvest time is or when raspberries are ripe and stuff, if you get a tremendous amount of rain for an extended period of time, raspberries will easily rot. And uh, you can just lose a whole crop. I mean, millions of dollars. Um, so they're very delicate. And uh, so in order to get vine fruit, this is, I think this is especially true with vine fruits, is they require a, t- a tremendous amount of care and, and being delicate with them. And I think that that's a good um, picture of how does a church like ours, how does a church, a community, begin to bear fruit and, and become fruitful in, 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 in terms of being loving and, and honest and, and joyful? How does that, that fruit begin to come out of us? It requires that the leadership have a kind of delicateness, a gentleness to them, that people feel free and have space to be honest about who their li- what their lives are and to, honest to be, them, to be themselves and to take the risk to go into relationships and, uh, and being a church leader is, uh, is very much like being a farmer is being very delicate with, with his fruit. And, uh, and I, I think that you know that by the mood of a church. You know, a church has a certain atmosphere to it where you, you can't even name what it is, but there's a certain atmosphere where you know I can be honest in this church or I can't. You might not even be able to name what it is, but there's just an atmosphere that you know intuitively whether this is a safe place or not. 
The way that that mood or atmosphere is created is by the church leaders. Do they have the kind of gentleness uh, to let people grow, to give people space to grow, to bring people along, okay? But, um, so elders need to embody that gentleness, but also there's another side to getting fruit out of a vine. It's not just that you're gentle with the fruit, but that you need to prune the vines, right? You You have to cut away the plant. And the interesting thing about pruning is that it appears that you are hurting the plant, right? I mean, if you're cutting into it, uh, you're cutting limbs off of it. It looks painful. And so that's an important side of being a church leader also is that on the one hand, you're gentle. And yet on the other hand, we have a responsibility to challenge the people in our church, to hold to the word of God and say, this is the word of God. This is what God calls us to. And to be able to speak into people's lives and to confidently enter into conflict and to call out sin. And, uh, you know, the, pruning is a skill, right? Um, you can actually be very bad at, at pruning. Where you, you know, have you seen those plants where someone just took one of these things to it and there's no leaves left? It's just the sticks. And, and you say, well, take it easy on the plant. And you, so you can actually butcher a plant. And, and, and that, the same thing could happen. For a church leader, they can say, well, I know that I need to enter into conflict. I need to call out sin. And yet I can't destroy this plant in the process. How do I do that? You see this mixture of gentleness and confrontation, of holding to the word of God, of correction. And Christian leadership, the skill of Christian leadership, and especially of elders, is this combination of these two things, of gentleness and challenge, nurture, and pruning. Okay, And um, how do you do both? How does someone learn how to do both those things, to know when I need to be patient with this person and gracious and just listen to them, or I need to speak to their life and challenge them and say they're wrong in this? How do you know? There's no manual, right? There's no formula for that. Well, I think that that leads us to the third quality of church leadership that is the most important, where the other two flow out of, is that Christian leadership must be gospel-centered. Christian leaders must have a heart that is focused, that has its hope in Jesus, that has received Jesus. Now, um, you know, this parable that Jesus is telling goes on. So uh, there's this guy who owns a vineyard, and he uh, he's asked these farmers to, to tend to the vineyard and to send him back fruit. And so he sends to them these servants and says, hey, what's going on with the fruit? How are things going? And, uh, you know, the guy wants some fruit, and they beat him up, and they throw him out, and they send him away with nothing. This happens three times. And what the, uh, the Jews would have understood this to be was the prophets of the Old Testament who went to God's people and challenged the church leaders and say, listen, you're being, you've rejected God. Why don't you come back to God? Where's the fruit? You're, you're not leading. You're not shepherding God's people. So three times the servants come. And then um, there's this very moving verse in verse 13. It says, then the owner said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. He's going to send the son that he loves to the church leaders. And the climax of the story all hinges on, are the farmers going to receive the son? What are, they, are they going to embrace him? And, um, and it, it, what this has to do is, do church leaders, are they, have they accepted the gospel? Has the gospel sunk in with them? Actually, in verse 1, you'll notice that the thing that the chief priests and scribes were challenging Jesus about was that he was preaching the gospel in the temple. 
He was welcoming sinners to come into the temple and be reconciled to God. He was welcoming people, and they didn't want that. And uh, what the gospel says is that I am far more sinful than any of you ever imagined I was. (laughs) And yet in Christ, um, God loves me uh, immovably, unshakably. He uh, has, has washed away all the sins that I've done, and he's embraced me. And so I have the security that is in Christ, because Christ has died for me. And so I have this combination of understanding myself as both uh, far more sinful and far more loved than anything else, anyone else in the world would tell me. And, um, and the biggest question about uh, Christian leadership is has that truth really sunk in? Because, listen, what creates humility in someone? What, if, if, if the first point of Christian leadership is humility, what creates humility? It's a sense that I'm knowing I'm a sinner. And yet, what creates gentleness and, and uh, knowing what to prune, what to cut off, what to challenge? Where, where do you get that security to say, I'm going to walk into a conflict, I'm going to have a hard conversation, and this may hurt someone, and I'm going to do it with gentleness? Where does that come from? We see what Jesus has done for us. I know that God loves me, that if I walk into a hard situation, uh, God is with me, and that he loves me. And yet I know that this person needs to be loved because I, I need to be loved. I need, I need God to be patient with me, so I need to be patient with them. And that all of these characteristics of what fruitful and humble leadership comes from, it comes from that the, that the gospel is really sunk in an internalization of the gospel. And... Um, and this parable um, shows that the church leaders had rejected the son. The beloved son had been sent to them, and they didn't want him. And uh, look again at verse 16. This is, what, this is what happens at the end of the parable. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Surely the son had been sent to us. We, we wouldn't reject him. But Jesus looked directly at them. I love that line. He looked directly at them. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And what Jesus says is the mark of true Christian leadership is someone who has fallen on the the rock and has been broken to pieces. Has a church leader been broken before God? And, you know, I, I put a quote for you um, on page three of your bulletin. It's a little long, but I want to read through it really quick. This is from Henry, Henry Nowen. Uh, he wrote a book called In the, In the Name of Jesus, which is about uh, church leadership. And this is what he says. Just as the future leaders must be mystics deeply steeped in contemplative prayer, so also, so also must they be persons always willing to confess their brokenness and ask for forgiveness from those whom they minister. Confession and forgiveness are the concrete forms in which sinful people love one another. Often I have the impression that priests and ministers are the least confessing people in the Christian community. That's a powerful statement. That priests and ministers are the least, uh, least confessing people in the Christian, uh, Christian community. That's challenging to me as a pastor. When ministers and priests live their ministry mostly in their heads and relate to the gospel as a set of valuable ideas to be announced, the body quickly takes revenge by screaming loudly for affection and intimacy. See, the body knows intuitively, they feel the atmosphere, that the gospel's not here. 
There's no gentleness here. <laughs> because the, the, the leaders aren't themselves broken. Confession and forgiveness are precisely the disciplines by which spiritualization and carnality can be avoided and true incarnation lived. Now listen to this last part. This is really important. Through confession, the dark powers. Now the dark powers are everything that, that our world hates about organized religion, of being manipulative and controlling. Those are the dark powers that live in all of our leaders. Those dark powers live there. The dark powers, by confession, are taken out of their carnal isolation brought into the light and made visible to the community. Through forgiveness, they are disarmed and dispelled, and a new integration between body and spirit is made possible. When you have leaders who are broken and confess their sin, and they live in the gospel, everything that we hate about organized religion is dispelled and disarmed. And the church becomes a place where sinners come, and they know that they're going to be nurtured, and they know that they're going to be cared for. And, uh, and, the, and the leaders are going to be humble, and the, the community will be humble. Because the community uh, follows the atmosphere of the leaders. So my prayer for us as we go through this first step is that for decades, for hopefully centuries, Christ Church Bellingham would be a community that God blesses with leaders who are humble, who are fruitful, but all because their hearts have been captured by the goodness of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, who is sufficient for these things that you've called us to, we pray that the leaders in our church, I pray that starting with me, uh, that I would confess my sin, that you would expose the dark powers that, um, that my heart holds on to, and that the leaders that you appoint into this church would be diligent to confess their sin and to embrace the beloved Son who you have sent to us. And that uh, out of that, there would be much fruit in this, that we could offer to you in this church. Bear much fruit here. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.